Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. You're going to love listening to today's episode because it is with the preeminent pioneer in the use of nicotine, not tobacco, but nicotine in a whole variety of age-related and brain conditions with more than 30 years of practice. Today's cool fact of the day is that we are discovering that kids are even more sensitive to light exposure than adults. A new study just came out that showed that showing preschool kids light in the evening suppresses melatonin almost completely, way more than it does in adults, which is a really important thing to understand. The new study built upon a 2015 study where they looked at kids who were 9 to 16, and they found that these kids were even more sensitive to it when they were younger. And the logic dictates, but we don't have a study, that says even young infants would probably be most sensitive. In the study, they used several different types of light. They went from a dim amount of light, which is about 15 lux, to a moderate, which is 150 lux, like a 60-watt bulb, all the way up to 500 lux, like a bright, bright room. And they did show a dose response. So the dim light suppressed melatonin about 9%, the moderate light, one light bulb, by about 26%, and bright light was about 37% in the younger kids and less so in older kids. And even brighter lights would do more than that. The reason that this is a really cool and important fact of the day is that there are three things that bright light does in kids and in adults, but more in kids in the evening. And one is depression, the other is suicide, and the other is cancer. And circadian disruption is tied to all three of those things. And so today's cool fact of the day is keep it dim. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to a hundred days at neurohacker.com slash Dave 15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave 15 Qualia NAD plus. It's what I use. Today's guest is Dr. Paul Newhouse. Dr. Newhouse has a broad background in human cognitive medicine and neuroscience and has been for 30 years studying cognitive models in humans. He's the director of the Vanderbilt Center for Cognitive Medicine in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Vanderbilt. And he's looking at the cognitive basis of neuropsychiatric disease. And the reason I wanted to have him on the show today is that his research focuses on specific mechanisms in the brain, like the cholinergic system, which is where acetylcholine, the big neurotransmitter that's sort of stimulating, affects things, as well as the nicotinic cholinergic receptor system. And if all that sounds super geeky for you, that's all right, because we're going to be talking about how cognition works and how these receptors are important for things like Alzheimer's disease and other conditions. And you're going to learn a lot about what's going on between those ears of yours. Uh, Dr. Newhouse, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, you have spent 30 years studying the brain. 
and cognitive processes. Closer to 40. Closer to 40. All right. But who's counting? Yeah. Uh, What got you so interested, especially 40 years ago? And this was, I I think humans have always thought about what's going on in there, even going back to the ancient Greeks. but, But what piqued your interest and has kept you engaged in this field of study for so long? Well, I I think that I came out of medical school and I had an opportunity to work on a research uh, unit at the National Institutes of Mental Health uh, in Bethesda, Maryland. And it was a really fascinating experience where we were studying in many many ways for the first time the cognitive underpinnings of these very unusual disorders like Huntington's disease and Parkinson's disease and anorexia nervosa. And we were trying to, in our own primitive way at the time, understand the underlying biology behind these disorders and what was happening to their mental processes as these neurodegenerative disorders took over. And I got fascinated with the idea that we could use the tools of uh, cognitive science, of biology, and to understand what the mechanisms were that are going on in the brain, what goes wrong, and then how we could probe that system to develop new treatments and new approaches to enhancing cognitive function and the quality of people's lives. Uh, See, you you got interested and and took off uh, ever since. And it's interesting that you started this work at the National Institutes for Mental Health, probably Mm -hmm. right around the time it was was basically spun out from the National Institutes of Health. It sounds like in the very early days. Well, no, it was a fully formed institute by that point. This was in the late 1970s. Okay, it was the early 70s. Yeah, so it was, um, but it was a very unique group of people who were studying very curious disorders that other people hadn't made much headway with, and we were we were taking sort of novel approaches. So it was a bit for a young student. It was a bit like being in a candy shop. I mean, we got to work on these amazing disorders with amazing people and and patients and. Uh, Uh, We were just really exploring the early days. And when I came back to that work a few years later, I wanted to work in Alzheimer's disease. I joined, I went back to the NIMH uh, as a postdoctoral fellow and had an opportunity to join a group of people who were really, we were really kind of inventing things as we went along to try to work out what was going on in the brains of these people. And this was the early days of of brain imaging and uh, and it's ex- what we, we, we would now call experimental pharmacology and uh, trying to use drugs as probes to try to understand what what was working and what wasn't working in the brain. And I think we made a lot of headway. It's, uh, it's changed a lot. A lot of the drugs, uh, maybe some of the ones that you worked on, things that were designed for Alzheimer's or specific diseases are now being... Uh, at least considered as cognitive enhancing agents in healthy brains. Does that scare the heck out of you, or are you happy to see that? It Well, it doesn't scare me. I think that we have yet to really establish that drugs can enhance normal human performance. 
cognitive performance. One of the things that I've studied over the years is ways to impair people's performance and then look at how that changes with alterations in chemistry or pharmacology. It's very easy to use a drug to impair performance. It's much harder to show in any clear way that you've improved normal performance. Now, yes, if you knock someone's performance down, you can use drugs to bring that back up again. But to improve performance from a normal baseline has proven to be very, very difficult. And in fact, most of the drugs that we've studied as cognitive enhancers actually show that in normals, they tend to impair performance as much as anything. And I think there's a very good biological reason for that, that we and others have published on over the years, which is this upside down U-shaped curve of normal functioning. Most of us, if we're lucky, tend to function near the top of that curve. And so if we simply flog receptors with more chemistry or more drugs, we tend to push people over the top of that upside down U. If we're down functioning near the bottom, then absolutely drugs and biological manipulations can improve us. But we're also understanding a lot more about circuit mechanisms and circuit dynamics and how that might impact people's functioning, especially the impact of drugs on their functioning. It begs the question that there's an assumption that most of us are, are sort of within that standard deviation of a, of a normal uh, in, in terms of our cognitive function. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a time in my life where I would have sworn up and down that I was one of those, but I was you know, living in a house that had neurotoxins from water damage <laughs> and a, uh, a spec scan showed that my brain was absolutely, well, so I had room for improvement. And, and if we, if we were to you know, take a insert name of your favorite neurological workup for people, whether it's an EEG or, or some kind of imaging, um, wouldn't most people have some areas of their brain that are underactive or overactive or not working very well? I think the answer is, if it's if you're saying most people, I think the answer is probably no. Interesting. Okay. Um, so activity in the brain is not a linear construct. Oh, yeah. So more activity is not necessarily better and less activity is not necessarily worse. And one of the things we're learning about this, actually, this turns out to be really interesting, is that If there's a drug that enhances cognitive performance, let's say, in an Alzheimer's patient, it may increase activity in areas that you want to be active for a particular task, let's say, but it may actually decrease activity in a different network that we see typically overactive in a patient. So, for example, one of the things we showed in patients or or in a review paper that we published a few years ago where we looked at nicotine effects on brain activity. The data seem to suggest that that a cholinergic drug, for example, might increase task-relevant areas in the brain, but it might actually decrease activity or decrease connectivity. And now we're talking a lot more about connectivity than just activity. Uh, it might decrease connectivity to areas that are less valuable or, or you don't want to be activated. I mean, one of the things we know about the brain as it changes with both the normal aging and with disease is that you start getting overactivation of a lot of areas that aren't used in 
younger ages or in air, or in patients without pathology. Now that may be compensatory in some sense, but that comes at a cost. So it's so that what I'm trying to say, I'm sorry I'm going on about this, but it it's really just not a linear construct. You can't say, oh, I need to increase the activity of these areas of my brain. It may actually be better for you if you decrease them. That is a, a fantastic explanation. And uh, one of the uh, one of the the projects that I'm involved with is uh, a neuroscience uh, facility where we're doing a 24 channel QEEG brain scans and, and and five days of intensive neurofeedback, where we can see yes, you know, these circuits are overactive and these areas are overconnecting, uh, and you know, these areas maybe are only overactive in one frequency band and they're underactive in another if you're looking at it from an electrical perspective, and it gets. It, it gets very easy to look at something and say, could you draw a line between you know, bad performing and high performing? It, it would not be a straight line. It's like a fuzzy swath. And if one goes up and something else doesn't go down, it's not going to work. And I'm, I'm really happy that you're, uh, that you're explaining that because right. um, even, even the, the real simple cognitive enhancer uh, things like caffeine, uh, nicotine, uh, that, that have mm-hmm. been relatively well studied for the last long periods of time, like you said, sometimes they do good things, but sometimes they don't do good things. And and even figuring out how they do good things is really interesting. And we're still kind of at the beginning of that. So I just wrote a proposal a few weeks ago, which just went in last week to to look at a novel molecule that we've developed here at Vanderbilt uh, that we believe will be cognitively enhancing. And this and the way we want to look at this in patients, we've already got this molecule into humans now in our phase one study, but we want to actually test this in patients and, and we want to take a totally new approach to testing it, which is not to use the same old approach we've done before, but actually to use brain networks as a measure of of what we call target engagement. We want to show that we can actually change the relative activity and connectivity of these well-understood or, well, reasonably well-understood brain networks. Because that, to be honest, that's sort of where the brain is, right? The brain is not just a collection of cells. It's a collection of cells which then form themselves into networks, which those networks then interact to produce behavior and thought. And so this is the challenge, I think, and, and, and makes it harder, I think, to develop these things because we're working at multiple layers of complexity. My research into mitochondria suggests there's a mitochondrial network underneath that where there's uh, quorum sensing, like the mitochondria talk to each other, uh, both inside a cell and between different neurons. <laughs> so there's a communication network happening there and they communicate with you know, other systems in the body. So like, like there's multiple layers of networks that run throughout the system. Exactly. And that that's correct. So there are subcellular networks, right. right, at the level of mitochondria. There are very intense relationships within cells. And that's, of course, the focus of a huge amount of, of medical research is to understand molecular and cellular mechanisms. And then there are sort of small systems. So I have a colleague who has developed a very clever set, a set of electrical and chemical sensors to actually record from very small circuits within, let's say, the primary visual cortex in the brain of a, of a monkey. 
and she can record from them and tell you what the local circuit is doing when they see when that animal sees a certain visual stimulus and she can tell us what acetylcholine is doing right at that circuit level that micro circuit and then we are taking it to the next level where we want to look at larger ensembles of circuits which is what the complexity so you're absolutely right there are multiple circuits that we have to be able to engage with one of the the things that i discovered in my own path i I like to think i'm a reasonably intelligent guy and i hit a time in my my mid-20s where my brain just wouldn't do what i knew it used to do Uh, and i I was really struggling in grad school uh in when i was about 30 from this and um, it turns out i did have things inhibiting my cognitive function and by removing those things i got a boost but I, I continue doing other things that that you know, different studies, different kinds of training, uh, different uh, substances, things like modafinil, that, that really did, at, at least from my perspective and from my external measured level of success, uh, uh, made, uh, made made a meaningful difference. And and I continue to do stuff today, even you know, mitochondrial level things that seem to make, wow, I have more energy in my brain, just worked for longer. Like the duration of cognitive function is is a measure of enhancement as well. And I'm I'm sort of looking at this as a as a hacker, which is my real background, where you don't know what's going on inside a system, but you want to manipulate the system. So you look at inputs, but you look at the highest level outputs possible. Uh, and when you're looking at networks like that, are you uh, in in your studies? Are you looking at measures of you know, perceived energy or or you know external? What what does everyone else think this person's doing? Or are we still like down inside the brain when we're looking for the results of these things? I no, we look at we look at all of those kinds of responses. Okay. So in human studies, we're very interested in what people perceive about their treatments as well as what they perceive their functioning to be. So um we have been working very hard over the last few years to try to listen better to patients about what they perceive their cognitive and behavioral functioning is. Um, we've spent a considerable amount of effort on that. Um, we take people's memory complaints very seriously because we think that um, they may have those complaints may have important implications for their underlying risk, for example, for cognitive disorders in later life. Um, that's been a bit of an uphill climb, but I think it's now accepted within our field that people's reports of how they're doing are important to listen to. Now, we, you know, this turns out to be very much a double-edged sword, however. Oh, yeah. So we re- recently completed, one of my graduate students just finished her dissertation study, which was a treatment trial in patients who had post-chemotherapy, post-cancer chemotherapy, what they perceived as cognitive impairment following the successful completion of their chemotherapy. And this is, you know, so-called chemo brain, if you will, mm-hmm. Right. So we did a study with transdermal nicotine, and we had hoped within the confines of a fairly short, low-dose study that we would be able to see if there was a signal here. It's not a definitive study, just a small pilot study. And what we found to our surprise was, yes, there was a very strong therapeutic effect, but so was the placebo. So patients (laughs) improved dramatically on treatment, but they improved just as well and over the exact same time course on placebo, if we used subjective cognitive reports, if in other words, if we used a structured instrument 
that allowed us to rep- for them that was developed by another investigator in a cancer in the cancer field who had developed this instrument specifically to look at people's perception of their functioning. What we found, and she'd done, she published a lot of work on this, and it looked like a very solid instrument. And what we found was that it's incredibly responsive to placebo effects. Now, that's very interesting and not to be dismissed at all because placebo is really interesting and how people, how people's brains react to the involvement of being in a treatment trial and getting treatment and having people listen to them carefully and take what they're saying seriously is not, you know, we don't sneeze at that at all. But it demonstrates the challenge in trying to establish an efficacy. So right now, what we've concluded from her study is we can't conclude. (laughs) How frustrating. We've concluded that the study wasn't designed well enough to allow us to make any definitive conclusions about the effectiveness of nicotine in this case. So anyway, it's it's I think there's a there's a you know, she she was initially quite disappointed in this result, but now I think we've I've convinced her that actually there's a lot of interesting results going to come out of this. It just won't be what she expected. Yeah, it's the the age-old problem for anything from uh, yoga uh, to any pharmaceutical agent. Yeah, how much of it is because we believe uh, that it works versus uh, because it has an effect independent of our belief? Well, it, it, I think it's even more than that, though. It's not just our belief that it works. It's the impact of visiting with a person who tests you uh, every few weeks or coming in to a clinic where people take you seriously, it actually can produce benefits to your cognitive functioning, your mood, your energy level, right? If you're, if you see somebody that you have a good relationship with and you trust and who takes you seriously, you, we know that your treatment will benefit, right? We know that, I mean, that's the basis of every good doctor-patient relationship is, is establishing trust and confidence. That's not to be, we, we take that very seriously. So that's more than just belief. It, it, that's, that's a fair point. Um, I have a, a friend, uh, Robbie, who makes something called the X-Pill, and he read a bunch of studies on placebo and said, well, I'm just going to make a little purple pill that everyone knows doesn't have anything in it. And you basically write on your own, like what the little label on this is. And then you take the pill just to tell yourself that's what you want, which sounds incredibly stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and, and he's, he's done a reasonable amount of science, not an IMH uh, level of science, but an, enough to say, wow, people get at least a placebo effect from taking something that's labeled placebo. And uh, for things like motivation and willpower and, and other things that are kind of surprising, uh, I, I spent a couple hours chatting with him and said, well, th- this is surprising. But if we look at something like nicotine, where we know that it has a mitochondrial enhancement effect, we know it raises PGC1-alpha in a way that, like exercise does. Um, and, and we know that there's like a plausible mechanism for this to work and we'd expect it to work. Is there a way uh, to, to ever know that it is affecting chemo brain? Like, like, would you measure this at a subcellular level? Would you measure this at a network level? Or is it really about these higher level perception things? Well, I think it depends. I think you have to ask the right question before you know how to measure something, right? So if you're looking to measure people's perception, then you have to measure their perception, right? If that's your outcome measure, you have to design a study 
that is long enough and adequately dosed enough and with the right design. And there's a lot of really bad clinical trial designs out there, right? So things mm-hmm. have failed. We, we've seen the, this Alzheimer's field littered with failure, not always because the agents are bad, but because the study designs were bad. They asked mm-hmm. the wrong question. They asked it in the wrong way. They did an inadequate study. So I guess the question is, yeah, I think you could design studies to adequately address chemo brain, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turned out that the one that we designed uh, didn't do that. But, you know, we learn from those mistakes and we say, OK, now we we should design something a little bit different. And you're right. We should look at other outcomes. And so if we do this study again, which we're hoping to get funded to do, we will look at brain circuitry and we will look at other outcome measures that might be proxies for uh, the eventual target. I I do owe you uh, a thanks uh, because back in 1988, uh, you were the first person to propose augmenting the nicotinic system to treat Alzheimer's disease. And I've come across a few of your papers and I'm uh, I'm a relatively outspoken fan of nicotine, as apart from tobacco and smoking, which have clear risks. Mm-hmm. But but nicotine as a as a purified agent seems to be a, a really potent cognitive enhancer for at least a set of people, uh, in, including me, and probably even has some health benefits uh, depending on which benefits you're looking at. Even though there might be other counteracting things, mm-hmm. um, what made you look at these pathways or look at nicotine as a medical therapy uh, so early on? Well, you know, it's like it's like everything else. It's a little bit serendipity. Um, I came into a lab at NIH where people were looking at cholinergic um, drugs. And I looked around and I said, well, what's no one else looking at? And I said, well, I seem to remember from medical school that nicotine activates the same system. Why don't I look at that? And in those days, there was no patch, there was no gum, there was no spray or vape or anything like that. So we had to actually make our own nicotine for intravenous use. We had to infuse it. And we had to basically create our own pharmaceutical, which we did at NIH with the help of some very clever pharmacists. And we actually created an intravenous formulation of nicotine that we could infuse gradually into people. And we had to learn to do that. We had to learn to do it safely. And so it was tolerable. And right away, we began to see some hints that there were that this was active in a way in in a very rapid way. And that sort of got me launched into sort of asking the next question, which is, well, what are these what are these nicotinic receptors doing in the brain? They had only just been identified at about the same time. So simultaneously with my interest, a guy named Ke- Ken Kellar at Georgetown, who's still there, Ken Kellar was doing the really the first identification in the human brain and in the rat brain of where these nicotinic receptors were, where these receptors were for nicotine. And we'd always been taught, oh, there are no nicotinic receptors in the brain or almost none. Wow. And like a lot of things we're taught, they're turn out to be wrong. And so Ken did some of the first identification of nicotinic receptors. Other people quickly followed with even better techniques uh, to image these receptors and to show where they were and what they did. And that launched a whole field, which is still continuing to this day of 
understanding where are these receptors, what do they do, and what do they not do? And now how can we take advantage of those receptors to move the brain around, move um, cognitive processes, emotional processing, and then use that therapeutically potentially? I think you might be, uh, I, I don't even mind. It, it sounds a little bit humble when you say potentially because, I, I mean, you've you've studied nicotine and at least the nicotinic system in the brain uh, for mild cognitive impairment, uh, the chemo brain you talked about, uh, the Alzheimer's disease, uh, and even you're looking at things like HIV and aging and Down syndrome, uh, and just all these very disparate things, uh, all boiling them down to this one receptor in the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you must believe that there's uh, that there's some meat on the bone, for lack of, <laughs> lack of a better word here. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, I, I'm not sure I would use meat on the bone, but what I would say is that we think that nicotinic uh, stimulation is a modulatory system, right? So it modulates, not necessarily mediates, but modulates a whole set of other neurotransmitter systems and biological processes, right? It's a very ancient receptor system phylogenetically. And what, what we think it does in the human brain or in the, in the primate or in, excuse me, in the mammalian brain is that it doesn't transmit information directly that much itself, right? That's mostly glutamate. Right. Glutamate okay. is the major sort of excitatory transmitter. But what nicotinic receptors do is they they act like gain enhancers. Right. So they modulate the gain of a particular neurochemical event. So if you sp- stimulate a nicotinic receptor that's sitting presynaptically or sort of in the in the end of an axon and you get more bang for your buck when a signal comes along. OK. And so. Uh, what we think it can do is amplify an already existing signal. Now, you know, if you've ever played with amplifiers, <laughs> that if you amplify signal just to the right amount, you actually increase signal to noise. But if you over amplify it, you just get noise, right? Right. And that's what we think. That's why we get this upside down U-shaped curve, because you want to sort of find the right exact amount of extra amplification that gives you the best signal, if you will. What a beautiful analogy. I've never heard it explained that way. Uh, And I'm pretty open about this. I am, I just love nicotine. I've never smoked in my life. I I did half Mm -hmm. a cigar once. It made me sick uh, when Mm -hmm. I was 20 something. Uh, But other than that, but um, using uh, patches or sprays or lozenges um, on occasion uh, for writing my books and for, for giving a really uh, powerful onstage thing, mm-hmm. maybe my brain benefits from that kind of amplification. Um, but And that may be. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things is we don't really have a great grasp yet of who will benefit and who won't, right? So yep. it's pretty clear that there's a collection of people who smoke right? Or use tobacco or use nicotine in some recreational way or who get benefit from it, right? So a few years ago, many, about a decade ago or more, um, I had a graduate student and she was really interested in ADHD, right? Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And she was interested in, you know, one of the things we knew about these people is that they smoke a lot. Right. Well, why was that? Right. 
So she, we began to look into what were the potential effects, neural effects of nicotine on cognitive processing in ADHD. We knew that amphetamines, for example, were used. They help stimulants help patients with ADHD. And what we found by actually taking this into the lab was that there was a cognitive process of what we call behavioral inhibition that nicotine really seems to help in these patients. In other words, it kind of slows down their brain a little bit and reduces impulsive responding in the lab. And what we showed in a paper some years ago was that you could actually use this lab measure to predict how effective a nicotinic treatment might be in a real-world test. So we could say, okay, if we got this degree of improvement in this particular task in the lab, which is called the stop signal task, which is a measure of how quickly you can stop a response, a prepotent response, that actually mapped on pretty well to how well the drug would work in a clinical trial. So we began to realize that there are some people out there who really benefit from tuning their brain a little bit this way, maybe. They just want to be, you know, so many of us, if we have depression, for example, or mood disturbances or anxiety, right, we might benefit from tilting us just slightly to the right or the left. And that's what nicotine may do. And so, for example, if, you know, we always used to, we joke around our lab that nicotine in some respects is the perfect psychotropic drug because if you're de-aroused, it will arouse you. If you're over-aroused or hyper-aroused, it will calm you down, right? So it will bring you more into sort of that middle ground, right? So the guy in the movie who's going to be executed and they offer him a last cigarette, right? Right. I mean, there's a reason there because it's anxiolytic. It's anti-anxiety. It reduces anxiety. But if you're de-aroused, it may actually wake you up. Now, that's different from amphetamine, which oh, yeah. won't do that. Won't do that. Amphetamine has a kind of linear unidirectional effect, right? It just simply flogs your dopamine and noradrenaline receptors until you basically run out of transmitter. And so that doesn't really tune the system very well. Uh, my limited experience with uh, with amphetamine as a prescription uh, in, in business school is that it made me want to either hide under a desk or hit people. Uh, <laughs> but well, exactly. it, it, was, it was not at all like nicotine, uh, that's for sure. But if you had ADHD, you see. Uh, which I did, yeah. What, which you, you, what you might find is that stimulants may actually improve your ability to inhibit you know, inappropriate yeah. impulses or, or improve your ability essentially to be on task, for example. So it, it really depends. And I always, I always try to explain this to people that the effect of any drug that has this sort of bi-directional effect is really dependent on where you start. So we can show even in rats, if you buy a hundred white rats from a supplier and you give them nicotine, you will find some of them will really get a better cognitive performance, some of them will get worse. Wow. And it really depends on which the, where those animals started. So the ones that perform really well without nicotine will get worse with nicotine, and the ones that are poor performers will show improvements. 
That, that leads to a, a really important question uh, for people listening to the show. Um, there are a lot of people who think they're really good performers, but aren't performing at the level they're capable of. There are a lot of people who are good performers performing at their limit. And then there are people who know they're not performing at their capability set. How would you know if you're one of those people for whom nicotine might be a useful substance? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a tough one. I'm not sure that we know how to tell people. Could what you to just, do. could you just try it and see if you feel better? I mean, there is, you know, it's a free country. <laughs> I mean, people try these things, right? So, um, I mean, but I'm, I'm not asking it you know, from a you know, libertarian perspective there, but no, just, I understand. just like, like, is it a, is it something that you would, you, you'd be like, wow, I, I like my life better on this. It's probably working or, or is there other stuff involved? People do N of one experiments all the time, right? Yep. So if you feel anxious, you know, or you're annoyed or upset or stressed, you know, you might have a gin and tonic or something or right, right. a glass of wine, right? And you'll say, oh, well, this really helped. I feel much calmer now. So, uh, you know, for most people who try nicotine, who believe that they're not functioning that well, I would bet that for most of them, I could objectively demonstrate that it doesn't improve their performance. Wow. But does it benefit their subjective perception of their performance? That's a different story. There were studies back in the 70s that looked at, for example, amphetamine effects mm -hmm. on performance. And what they, what I believe that they showed, if I'm remembering correctly, is that people felt they were performing much better, but weren't, in fact. Almost all of the cognitive enhancers, whether modafinil or even some of the brain training, um, suffer from that same, uh, that, that same problem. Right where where you you think you are, but you don't know if you are. And um, I've over the years of working on my own brain, uh, uh, I do know things like lost words, where I just can't think of something that is it, it's vanished from my life, and it used to be a common source of stress for me. So like like there's some external things, even doing the day to day finger tapping test, like the very basic measures of short term executive function it seems like it can be all over the place. And and so I, I would love to be able to offer people uh, listening to the show, like, how do you know where you are in that spectrum? Are you uh, a person who's working at your capacity? When someone is considering nicotine or any of the other cognitive enhancing substances uh, that are out there like that, uh, they're always going to be suffering from this, well, I think it worked, uh, therefore it did work, uh, self-inherent bias, what is the mechanism or is there a mechanism like a, a daily test or, or something that you could do or something you might use in a study that would be accessible to people to just let them check in and, and see whether they're wasting their, their, you know, 50 bucks on whatever this cognitive enhancer is or whether it's actually benefiting them? Well, so this is a very rapidly developing area. Okay, so you're talking about something that is now being labeled as ecological momentary assessment. EMA. Cool. So the idea here is, can you take cognitive assessment out of the lab and put it in, uh, can you put it out there for people to give you data? So um, one of my, one of the postdocs in the center is developing a study with a guy at Washington University uh, who is developing uh, phone-based, you know, iPhone or iP Android phone-based platforms to do uh, real-world assessments uh, right on your phone. 
And that data will get fed back in. And what she's interested in is looking at people with this subjective belief that their cognition is changing. And she wants to be able to test them over a long period of time and actually look at brain imaging periodically, right? So scan them and then also get this sort of ecological momentary assessment and do something, uh, there's this concept of so-called burst testing where we, we, I send, I send you, Dave, I send you a, a, a link and, uh, and on your phone and I test you once an hour for the next two days or once every day for the next seven days. And then I don't talk to you again, or I don't send you a link for the next month or two. And then I do it again randomly. And so the whole idea is to get some kind of database where people's functioning is looked at over a length of time. Because one of the things that you talked about a moment ago made me think that, you know, our cognitive functioning for all of us is a very noisy process. This hour, I might be really good, but an hour from now when I'm a little drowsier and it's the end of the day, I might not perform as well. And we're very attuned to this in our lab because we focus a lot on testing people at the same time, the same time of day, in the same situations with as much similar as we can make them, right? Because we know there are circadian effects on cognitive performance. We showed that when I was running a lab for the U.S. Army, that your cognitive functioning actually runs on a 12-hour cycle and actually pretty tightly linked to your core body temperature. And that people perform better in this at these hours of the day and poorer at those hours. So it's never a sort of fixed thing. And so if I can do EMA, if I can actually test you in real time in the real world, I can get a much better idea of your long-term performance. So, yes, I think we are getting close to be able to to roll this kind of thing out for people. That is one of the most important things I think happening in neuroscience, although there's a lot happening right now because I've become just keenly aware, probably because I I suffered from toxic mold stuff that really did like remove blood flow from parts of my brain, at least remove oxygen levels Uh, at a time in my life. I noticed when I was having a decline and I developed this whole lifestyle tool set of things where where I don't have the dips like I did before. And I'm never at 100% all the time, but I go from 100 to 85 instead of from 100 to 50 back to 100. So I, I've managed to reduce the dips, and it's it's had a profound impact on my performance. And enough Bulletproof followers have had very similar results from things like ketones and lots of these other things, including nicotine, that it seems like that's hackable. But we don't have great data other than, wow, I sure like my life. I feel good, and and I don't just fall asleep after work like I used to. Uh, so getting the data is, is is going to be transformative, especially when we get the data ourselves instead of uh, it, it going into a study that we don't actually get to, to know whether what we're doing works. Um, if you put on your future hat uh, 20 or 30 years from now, where do you think we'll be with cognitive enhancement? Well, I tend to focus most of my energy on obviously looking at ways to enhance cognitive function in disorders, right? right. Because I'm a pathologist, right? That's what a physician is. A path- we're, we are pathologists of a type, right? So unlike your job, my job is not to enhance normal cognition. My job is to look for ways to normalize or mitigate the impact of, of disorder. Now, what I 
have focused on is, as you alluded to early on, is the idea that we can take, for example, cholinergic stimulation, and I don't mean just nicotinic, but other cholinergic approaches, and we can apply those to conditions that look like accelerated aging, right? So we know, for example, in Down syndrome, Down syndrome patients survive to their 50s, 60s, 70s now easily because we fixed all the cardiovascular problems that they used to have. They get fixed easily now or relatively easily, but they age faster. We know that patients with HIV survive much better than they used to, but their bodies and their brains seem to still age faster than everyone else's. And so we have a number of conditions where we think they resemble accelerated aging. We think that cholinergic stimulation or nicotinic stimulation might be sort of agnostic to the disease state. And I think that's what the kind of tools we're looking for. So I, a colleague of mine at the University of Utah and I are just writing a grant that's going in on Monday to propose to the National Institute on Aging that we develop a novel method of cognitive training for patients with early memory loss that focuses on a different network in the brain than typically has been done up to now. So we want to focus, for example, on the cognitive control network, not just memory systems, but actually focus on networks that are involved in essentially executive function. We think we can train them in a way that will enhance and will provide what we call transfer effects, both near transfer and far transfer effects to a whole range of cognitive functions. So I think if I put my future hat on, I think we're going to become much more sophisticated about this. We're going to do what my colleague Risa Sperling at Harvard calls combat, which is combined. In her case, she calls it combined Alzheimer therapies nice. or combat to combine approaches. So it won't be just a cognitive enhancer anymore. It will be a cognitive enhancer plus specific brain training to target a specific set of networks or network or networks to enhance if you find that your son or daughter has is not doing well on this particular aspect of school, maybe specific training on tasks which enhance that network could enhance that ability to function. So instead of biohacking your mitochondria, maybe you're going to get a lot more bang for the buck by targeting a particular neural network, either chemically with training or both, in the same way you would target if you wanted to run faster or lift more weights or do something else, you would target the network that's involved. That is uh, profoundly awesome. And and I look at all of this stuff as there's a return on investment for the amount of energy you put into any therapeutic, whether it's a physical exercise, a brain training exercise, a, a pharmacological solution, whatever it is, it, it, there's always a cost. And it's how much time, energy, money, and is there a biological cost in terms of side effects? And how do you stack those most effectively to get the most return right. in the least time? And right. I, I feel like we're getting enough data now that maybe someday uh, we'll, we'll get there to the point where we're, we know we're getting the maximum returns. Uh, so we may know, for example, that intervening at the molecular level to prevent the de 
the depositing of abnormal proteins may reduce the risk of developing dementia or Alzheimer's, for example. But we may have to intervene at much earlier ages if we only took that approach. But if we combine that with neurotransmitter-based approaches, with cognitive training, and with molecular approaches, we may have a much more powerful wrench on this system to keep your brain healthier. Because to me, the most important thing is to keep your brain healthy and aging, because that's when you see the big decline. It's not in middle age, it's aging. Now, I've got to ask you something. You've been active in research for 40 years, which means mm-hmm. by any measure, you're at least uh, at least in your early 60s. Right. And I mean, you you look uh, very, very healthy. Like I, I've run an anti-aging nonprofit group for a while. Like your skin looks looks great. And uh, like like you you look like someone who's aging well. And you you're clearly your brain is working <laughs> at, at a high level. What do you do to take care of your own brain? Well, so, you know, it's funny. I, I was talking with a colleague uh, this morning about sort of a new center idea that we're developing, and we're going to call it something like the Center for Healthy Brain Aging. Love it. So what do I do? I, if you look at the data that's out there, right, and the National Academy of Medicine actually produced a report on this last year, the best data is physical exercise right okay. now. If you look at all of the data Um, The best data out there suggests that, you know, this gets back to your BDNF idea that you mentioned some minutes ago, which is that physical exercise seems to have the most, the biggest effect size. And even that is not that large, but it's, you know, it's a big effect, a bigger effect size. But I give a lecture every year where I say, well, here are all the things you can do. None of them have a very big effect size by themselves. Right. But if you start combining them, Now you're talking, right? So physical exercise, intellectual challenge, problem solving, socialization, mindfulness meditation, improving emotional health, all of these things seem to be linked to healthy brain aging. And the trick is how to combine them. And one of the ideas that I've had, haven't done it yet, but I want to do it, is to develop a clinic essentially where people who are concerned about brain aging come and get consultation and how their lives can be tuned in middle age to kind of prevent these problems, right? Because we don't have to cure Alzheimer's disease. We just have to put it off until you die of something else, right? (laughs) What a a pragmatic and awesome statement. Right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, As long as you put it off long enough, it's a non-issue. Right. Uh, And and your approach is, is... very much in line with uh, the work I'm doing. I'm, I'm in my mid-40s, and I, I know that I had mild cognitive impairment in my mid-20s. Uh, and Except we wouldn't have called it mild cognitive no, impairment. No, we, we wouldn't have. Uh, I, I had, uh, uh, let's see, Daniel Amen called it a toxin, a toxin-induced brain damage, essentially. And uh, certainly it wasn't working well, but I had the symptoms that would have actually highly correlated with, with, uh, the cognitive impairment that you study. And like, I don't want to go back to that and I'll do just about anything to not have a brain that works that way. And, and your idea that what if we just put a small investment in now, it saves a large investment later along with all the pain that comes with it. Um, I got asked though, I mean, is there a nicotine patch under, under your shirt sleeve there? <laughs> Uh, there is not. Um, there is not. Uh, I try not to take the drugs that I'm studying. 
um, because it would make me less objective. But but that's no fun. Uh, no, it's <laughs> it's fine. I mean, um, you know, I'm a cancer survivor. I take good care of myself. I mean, one of the things you learn in life is that um, you can do all the right things and take good care of yourself and life will still kick you in the behind. That is true. So I I have a wife who's a dietitian who feeds me very well and uh, takes good care of me. And uh, I've had some wonderful physicians who uh, who take good care of me and I try to enjoy myself and and work hard, but also try to lead a balanced life. And, and that's, uh, I think, uh, I think I'm going to do fine. Um, but you're right. I mean, you know, some of us are of course trapped with our genetics. That's a big issue. You know, genetics are not, uh, I'm not a determinant, I'm not a genetic determinist, but, but, uh, we are realizing that certain gene, certain genetic risk factors are, are present and we have to look for ways to mitigate those and manage those risks. Um, but, uh, but even, even in genetically high risk people, we're, we're starting a study now to look at a long-term prevention trial in genetically high risk individuals for Alzheimer's disease. And those studies are actually ongoing now across the country and around the globe. And one of the questions is, is it enough to simply do, you know, this molecular intervention or do you have to change lifestyles? And I think it's going to turn out to be that lifestyle is going to have as big an effect size as anything. Your uh, uh, all the things I've seen make me think that it's it cannot be an either or. When you combine the two, you get more than uh, more than you know, two plus two right. equals five kind of a situation. So I, I have one more question for you, uh, Doctor Newhouse. Uh, based on just all the things you've experienced in your life, including your academic research, but not just that. Uh, if someone came to you tomorrow and they said, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, what are your three most important pieces of advice? What would you tell them to do? Perform better at everything. Well, I guess I the first thing I would do is set realistic expectations. Awesome. <laughs> I mean, I would like to perform better at... Um, you know, lifting weights, for example, but I have to set realistic expectations about how much my body is going to let me lift without hurting my back. Right. So right. I think I think the first thing is to set realistic expectations and pick one or two things that you want to improve in your life and focus on that. And I think you're going to I think people who try to set too many or too high expectations are bound to get disappointed. So I you know, just with as with patients, what I do in my clinical practice with memory disorder patients is to set small goals and and make them achievable. All right. So we're going to manage these particular problems and we're going to try to focus on treating this problem and we're going to make everyone's quality of life better. And I think that's a reasonable even even true for normals, those of us who would like to improve. Right. So I was a bike racer at one point. I used to do competitive bike racing years ago. And one of the things I learned was I didn't have to get better. I just had to get older because I started moving <laughs> up in the classes and my performance relative to other people got better and better because they all dropped out. <laughs> don't, don't decline as rapidly as everyone else. That, that's that's right. a good strategy. <laughs> that's right. Keep doing it. Um, 
And so I think setting realistic goals is the first thing. I think that improving one's care of oneself is really important. I think adequate sleep turns out to be even, you know, we haven't talked about that at all, but uh, one of the things that I've become convinced of is that I wasn't sleeping as much as I should have been. Hmm. And so I focused more on getting better and longer sleep. Um, I think that's improved uh, cognitive function and actually seems to help clear the brain, right, of some of the abnormal proteins. Right. There's some evidence for that. It's weak evidence, but there is some evidence. And then I, I think I would focus on enhancing one's emotional life. And I think I'm convinced that mindfulness approaches may be extremely valuable in terms of improving one's uh, ability to focus and attend to information. I think we multitask way too much. And I, you know, I fault myself for this as well. Um, we're not really, you know, there seems to be a capacity limit to how much we can do simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And I think that I've become a, a convinced, at least personally, the way you have, you know, that I've become convinced that mindfulness has been very beneficial to me in terms of allowing me to improve my focus of attention, if you will. Um, it's a skill. It has it takes training. It's hard work. But it, I think it actually helps in a way train the mind. So I think mindfulness, I think, and then a regular physical exercise program, I think is incredibly valuable from all sorts of perspectives, both physical, cognitive, and emotional. And, and so I think if, if people did just those things and tried to do less of the bad things, right? Don't right, drink right. too much. Drink a little, but not too much, right? What's Michael Pollan's famous idea about your diet? Eat plants mostly. Yeah. Right? Eat plants. Don't eat too much and, and don't eat too much meat. I think all of those things, I think most people would find that their quality of life improved and, and maybe even their perception of performance. Now, we don't know about their actual performance until we actually measure, can figure out a way to reliably measure it. Uh, what, a, what an awesome answer. At least your perception of performance will improve and, and that'll feel good. Speaking of it, what is your favorite type of mindfulness practice? Uh, maybe something you do or something you've seen that's most effective. You know, I'm I'm a simple guy, so I just use, you know, MBSR, which is, you know, associated with John Kabat-Zinn. Um, I tend to, I'm a creature of habit, so I tend to use his approach because it's the one I learned. Um, I'm not saying it's the only one or even the best one, but but it seems to work for me. Well, you're you're definitely doing great work, and you have been for uh, going on 40 years now. <laughs> so it's right. always it's always useful to know uh, both how you think about it and and some of the tools you use. Uh, Dr. Newhouse, I, I just genuinely thank you for your continued work in this field for for decades, uh, and I think it it's made a meaningful difference. Uh, some of your research has been really informative for me. And I think that you've you've moved the needle uh, for a lot of people with a lot of conditions, uh, and, and it's had uh, reverberations uh, throughout the field. So, so thank you very much for being on the show, and thanks for your work. I appreciate it, and uh, you're very welcome. And stay tuned. We've got a lot more exciting stuff coming. We're developing new molecules as we speak, and we're rolling those out and uh, and new approaches. So, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm just getting started. Well, sign me up for the early adopter list. I'll, I'll be on it. All right. Thanks. Thanks. If you'd like to know more about Dr. Paul Newhouse's work, 
you can look up the Center for Cognitive Medicine at Vanderbilt, and they're always looking for people in trials or people who'd like to support the research. And this is really worth your research to support. You know, that's what I what I tell people now. I um, that if you want to cure Alzheimer's disease, volunteer for a study. <laughs> I love it. Uh, thanks again, Paul. All right, Dave. It's a pleasure. Take care. Take care. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.